You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This is Good Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston. I'm the co-host. Today, my guest is Gabriella Hoffman. She is a Young Voices contributor, also a freelance media strategist, award-winning writer, townhall.com political columnist. She hosts the District of Conservation podcast, and the C-Fact original video series, Conservation Nation. And she's been published all over the place today. We're going to get you up to speed on some of the ballot referendums that you might not know about. Some of them that I did not know about. Some of them that I'm supposed to be voting about here in a couple hours after I leave the office. So she brought me up to speed on all of those. We'll also get her election predictions in at the end of the show. So let's welcome Gabriella. Gabriella, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's a little chilly here in my corner of Northern Virginia, next door to Tennessee. The states are next door to each other. My region is not close to to your part of Tennessee, but we're practically neighbors. I can't complain. Uh, It's a nice fall day and I'm looking forward to what is going to happen later this evening. I'm very, very jealous about you saying it's a little cool because it's currently about 77 in my office right now. It's like 80 outside here. The air, the air conditioning is broken, and I just really wish it were cold outside today. But we'll, we'll move past that, I guess. I was telling you before we started recording that I Googled this morning what is even on the ballot in Tennessee and this is one of the problems I feel like we have every midterm election cycle or every election cycle. Here I am even doing a political podcast, talking to people about politics every single day of the week. And I have no clue what there even is for me to go vote for today. So if you could, I need you to enlighten me and some of the people that are listening on what's going on around the country right now. Yeah. And a lot of the focus, chief focus rather, on the midterm elections has been the candidates across House, Senate, and gubernatorial lines or statewide contests. And kind of overlooked and not given much limelight are these ballot initiatives that are often included on different ballots across the state. Some states may have some ballot initiatives. In my district, I only was able to vote for Congress, but I was very happy to vote against my sitting incumbent because he is now in some trouble potentially being compromised for hiring a and retaining a staffer, recently firing someone 
uh, for having some close ties to the Chinese embassy, the CCP in particular, Don Beyer, uh, in Virginia's 8th Congressional District. So that was the only option for me. Typically, in years prior, I remember ballot initiatives and the one that we'll talk about in Tennessee uh, shortly, we had a similar ballot measure when I first moved to Virginia to protect the right to work here in Virginia. We're a right to work state, much like Tennessee is. And it's it's interesting, but every state varies. I think some states that are competitive do have these ballot initiatives. And like you alluded to in my town hall piece that I think Anders from our team at Young Voices sent your way about my coverage on this. I wanted to highlight about five, six ballot initiatives that I thought would be consequential either in the good sense or bad sense. There's a lot of bad ballot initiatives and there's some good ones. I wasn't able to cover every single thing, but those are often ignored or people really don't know how to vote it for constitutional amendments or propositions or ballot measures because they're worded in an interesting way or they're worded in a confusing way and you don't know. If you go to Ballotpedia, actually, it's a great way to understand complicated ballot measures. They break it down super easy. And I was able to lean on Ballotpedia, which is a trusted source for assessing the five or six ballot initiatives that I looked into. And if we're going to start with Tennessee, I think this was a constitutional amendment. I think it's question one on your ballot to enshrine the right to work, which was first passed in Tennessee in 1947. It's a really old law, a very pro-business law that encourages people to look to Tennessee and its business climate to operate a new business or bring your business because it welcomes entrepreneurship. Uh, you don't have many barriers to entry to start. There's less red tape and you're not being forced to compel your workers to join a union. You can join a union if you want to in a right to work state, but when given the option, a lot of workers tend to not join unions and even union members tend to be very happy in right to work states, according to a study that I saw not too long ago that was published in Forbes magazine. So Tennesseans really like the right to work. I don't see this failing unless the union interests have really waged a campaign to ensure that no on this constitutional amendment passes. But I think because of Tennessee's leanings and voter makeup, because it's a largely Republican dominated state all across the board. And I think with the influx of new residents to Tennessee that are voting more libertarian or more to the center right, I think you're gonna see sizable margins in support of this amendment in addition to some of the competitive races. I know uh, that Nashville, Tennessee congressional race is very competitive and I think a Republican will take over that seat and maybe a few others that were previously Democrat or in the left's control. And so, yes, um, that ballot measure kind of just reaffirms Tennessee's seminal kind of pro-business law and I can explain why that's necessary uh, after you probe me some more. Well, on this. So, something that you already spoke on, which is they word these things in such a confusing manner. I mean, I, I, I saw what the Amendment 1 was, and I still had to do a lot of reading. I went to Ballotpedia so I could try and figure that out. And which way would I vote on this uh, to, I guess, uh, I protect the right to work status in Tennessee? I think that means I'm supposed to vote yes to enshrine that into Tennessee's constitution. I'm pretty sure I figured that out. But man, do they word these uh, in a very confusing manner on purpose, you think? I think because they assume most voters don't really read this and that these could pass, I mean, even ballot measures rather that are good, um, I think maybe by law they have to be worded and phrased in a certain way. I've never really run any ballot initiative campaign, so I can't speak to how they <laughs> phrase the questions or if it is required by state law that you phrase it in such a way. 
But I also think because they haven't been able to refine maybe the language for ballot initiatives, it often creates confusion, whether it's supporting good things or bad things. When it is a bad initiative, the convoluted wording of it, the phrase phrasing of it is deceptive to try to swindle people into supporting something which sounds great, but it could carry a lot of implications if it were to be enacted uh, by ballot box voting. And so you, you've seen a lot of, you know, kind of poorly worded initiatives all across the country, even beyond the 2022 elections. And so you do have to be very careful with reading good things and bad things that are up for a vote, because some of them will require appropriating more money for this project or levying a tax on residents to support, let's say, pork barrel funding or in park improvement or something trivial like that where everyone's going to have to pay more to accommodate some pet project in many cases if it's like a local ordinance but a ballot initiative can carry even more impact um sometimes bypassing uh the authority like the governor's authority or even the state legislature's authority and where we've seen ballot box voting i think go bad or, or rather have a serious ramification is in the state of Colorado. I work largely in wildlife conservation issues and the residents of Colorado narrowly approved a ballot measure, uh, ballot box biology, as we like to call it in the conservation space, to basically supersede the wildlife management agency in Colorado in introducing wolves. And when you have voters do that, it complicates things for how science administers wildlife management. And a lot of people see that ballot initiative as giving power to special interests in the environmental movement who don't really like management and other complicated things your listeners may not be aware of. But people see that ballot initiative as an example of where it can go awry. A good example recently, too, also in 2020, was I'm not sure if you're familiar. And we, like I said, we'll touch upon this Tennessee ballot more. California passed one of the most strident draconian laws to discourage freelancing in the United States in the form of Assembly Bill 5. And that was passed into law in, or that was signed into law rather, January 1st, 2020. Passed as a bill in the legislature, signed into law by Gavin Newsom, fall of 2019. It angered a lot of people, largely their uh, Democratic leading voter base, and they wanted to create a carve-out and exemptions. And in the form of Proposition 22, uh, over 55% of Californians, again, a largely Democratic voting base, voted to put limitations on AB5. So that's where it worked. However, that ballot initiative has been challenged in court, so it hasn't been able to go into effect to stop the excesses and the ruinous consequences that have stemmed from that law going into effect. So that is good in principle. It's unfortunately being met by challenges, but that's kind of a good and bad example, those two from Colorado and California, respectively as to how you have to pay attention to things that are worded and you can use ballot initiatives to correct wrongs from the governor or you could <laughs> bypass the governor and enact really crazy legislation. It just depends on what the topic is at hand and the state and the makeup and the attitude of voters there. So it's interesting. I think it could work to our favor and sometimes it can work to our disadvantage. From what I can tell, they took AB5 in California and they decided to turn it into something called the PRO Act and just decided to yes. uh, spread that across the entire country. And they've been trying to push that now, even though it was so unpopular in a heavily Democratic state mm -hmm. uh, that they voted to to change that. Uh, sounds like a great idea. Um, you So you did a good job in this piece separating things out. You call it the good, the bad and the ugly. 
And uh, what is, do you think the one in Colorado is uh, like the ugliest one? You talk about one in Oregon under this ugly section. I mean, what is, I also read about one in Illinois, I'm pretty sure, that would uh, give, oh, it had something to do with unions and be able to bypass uh, some of the votes from the legislature. Um, I can't, I, I can't remember so, yeah. exactly what it was. I used I to live in Illinois, so I got it, some of the news. But I didn't write about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, in knowing Illinois voting base, unfortunately, I think they're going to vote in favor of it. But in terms of the bad and the ugly legislation I highlighted in my town hall piece, I think they're all pretty bad. But I think the most consequential, given the fact that the Supreme Court basically said and kind of laid the groundwork for future cases that would not make it harder for you to own guns or put limitations on magazines or things of that sort uh, on gun ownership, whether it's specifically the firearm in question or the accessories needed so you can have bullets and not have a cap on how many bullets you can have in your weapon. And measure 114 in Oregon is very concerning because a lot of people go hunting, they partake in shooting sports in Oregon. And the Supreme Court, like I said, ruled that you cannot bar the ability of people to conceal carry. So they are slowly adopting that. And naturally what should follow is lifting restrictions on, like I said, magazine capacities, things of that sort. Uh, but they're not listening. And, and majority of organs, I have no doubt, do oppose those measures. So it remains to be seen how they vote on that because more and more people, even including those in Oregon, have been purchasing firearms. I'm not sure it's the highest percentage of gun ownership gains, but all across the country, New York, California, states that were previously May issue or very gun control heavy uh, states, they have seen historic levels of gun ownership among different demographics, purchasing demographics. And I think the same is also witnessed in Oregon. So as more of those people purchase guns and they see that there's limitations, I think many have seen how difficult it is to obtain a firearm in a May issue state or in a very go gun control heavy state like Oregon, what it used to previously be if they don't adhere to the Bruin decision and not pursue any further restrictions. And so I think that could have a lot of consequences even though the attitudes are changing in favor of gun ownership. And I cited also the California Proposition 20 as a bad one, but I could also have put it down as an ugly proposition. California has a wildfire management problem. There are federal and state tools at the behest of California, Sacramento, Gavin Newsom, to manage wildfires. This ballot initiative sounds great that it's going to help mitigate wildfires, but in the process to achieve that, although they should be doing it, it's within their respective duties to do this. The state government has to follow through with managing wildfires. They've pledged more money. But if you're going to be levying a tax on residents who make over $2 million, increasing an income tax rate by another 1.5%, and then you're going to levy that and appropriate that for electric vehicle subsidies, other so-called renewable benefits, and then wildfire mitigation... It makes absolutely no sense. And it sounds like a gimmick and it's worded in a way that it sounds great. Okay. I have to maybe ignore these two other things, but we'll get wildfire management. I don't see them getting wildfire management because they've kicked the can down the road because they're very guided by preservationist environmentalists. Environmentalists have put California's management plan into a tailspin. They have had high intensity fires there. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with forest management much, but to make the long story short of that, they have been reckless with fire management and they have seen some of the most high intensity wildfires and putting more money into this without actually pursuing a solution or 
having fire suppression and doing prescribed burns, them kicking the can down the road here, but by levying attacks here, it's virtue signaling. They're not serious about fire management or forest management, rather, if they are trying to burden the taxpayers when they have, like I said, those resources at their disposal. So that's also a big concern. I worry that Californians will pass that ballot initiative. Maybe some will not. I'm not sure anything can surprise us. It's an interesting election season this year. Um, maybe even some surprises from California, but there's a lot of things that could have consequences and it's really hard to undo constitutional amendments that are voted by the ballot box or through ballot initiatives, unless you sue them in court or a new governor and state legislature come in and they can undo something or vote to kind of overcome something that passed, obviously within the confines of their duties uh, with respect to the legislative branch, the executive branch. Um, but there are ways where you could challenge or overturn something if you have, let's say, the legislature um, do it and then the governor votes to change that there. So everything can be exercised. Interestingly, nothing is final. Uh, but in California, I'm from California originally, I've noticed that anytime a ballot initiative largely has gone into effect by a ballot box, it's really hard to overcome it or defeat it, especially bad ballot measures. Um, because they stay, given California's one-party dominance, supermajority by Democrats, it's increasingly, it's it's rather impossible to have any improvements unless you totally change the legislature where they can amend or change laws. Let's not just stick on all the real terrible stuff. I don't want anyone to get to the press today. Are there any good things that people are going to be voting on? In Iowa, there's going to be a constitutional amendment to enshrine Second Amendment rights into their state constitution. As I noted in my piece, about 44 state constitutions actually enshrine the rights to Second Amendments for citizens and residents of respective states. It's amazing Iowa hadn't had this before, and majority of states do enshrine it, even gun control-loving states. Amazingly enough, I need to do more research myself. So when I was looking into this, I was astonished by how many 44 of 50 states protect Second Amendment rights of their citizens. And Iowa hadn't done this because even though they're a really pro-Second Amendment state. So I think overwhelmingly Iowans are going to vote that in. It's just a matter of by how much. So I'm optimistic on that front. Like we talked about uh, your state, Tennessee, I think given the makeup of the state, uh, voters will overwhelmingly, or at least narrowly, so by some margin, if the union organization is not strong, I think you could see maybe a couple point difference in favor of the amendment. And if it's really, really... Um, a big Republican turnout, then perhaps it could be close to double digit support for that amendment because we're seeing rulemaking handed down by the federal government and states that are right to work will probably look to am amending or rather strengthening their constitutions, their individual constitutions to protect freelancers from being rewritten as employees or independent contractors be, re be rewritten as employees or by um protecting workers from being forcibly unionized. That's part of the Greater PRO Act. But the, the federal rule in question would be to alter what, what is called an economics reality test. Not so much the ABC test, although the Biden administration would love to impose an ABC test prototype, uh, but they would change the economic realities test, which is what is used for the Fair Labor Standards Act, to determine a worker's status. And if that is handed down, and let's say Tennessee passes this, I think there will be greater protections to Tennessean workers so that they're not automatically reclassified as employees against their will. And I think other states will follow if this rulemaking goes into effect and there's no legal challenges, although I hear there is legal challenges that are going to be afoot. 
very soon. And there's a lot of resistance to it from the business community. There's bipartisan opposition um, to this rule as well. But I think states can insulate themselves from invasive rulemaking like this by strengthening their constitutions to protect the right to work. Uh, so more workers are covered. And I think there's a handful of others, too, that I've probably not listed. But I think if voters are heightened to different issues, they will certainly vote their pocketbooks. They'll vote their interests in addition to voting for candidates that could make or break the difference of the makeup of Congress. I was going to ask you real quick, were you in California? You said that's your home state. Were you affected by AB5 at all or had you? I don't know if no. you still live there. OK, I'm I moved out 10 years ago, but okay. I still follow closely what happens back there. Yeah, we've talked a lot on the on the show about that. And, and I've told everyone a long time ago, like I started doing Uber driving when Uber first started. And that was uh, like the way that I made money for several years. And you do that because of the freedom that comes along with being able to be a gig worker. And I, I just can't imagine that being taken away from people. I consider the PRO Act uh, to be one of the worst potential pieces of legislation that could be mm -hmm. signed in uh, in recent memory. I would have to go pretty far back uh, in the archives to figure out what would be worse. That would totally destroy uh, the livelihoods of a lot of people. So I just didn't know if that had affected you uh, directly when you were in California. Oh, no, no. Like I said, I've been out of Virginia or out of California, living in Virginia for the past decade. But my home state is the Petri dish for really bad policy that gets exported <laughs> nationally. So you got to be heightened to what happens there because usually that legislation spreads like wildfire all across the country. Um, but yes, the PRO Act currently is actually stalled in Congress. And once the new Congress session goes into effect, I think if Republicans do flip both chambers back, we're not going to see that legislation pass. But we will see semblances of it carried out by rulemaking coming from the Department of Labor, perhaps the executive branch, specifically President Biden, handing down an executive order because he'll want to go out with a bang in his last two years as a lame duck president. And so he'll try to do something there. Passing, he's been using executive orders to bypass Congress, and it hasn't had really good effects for that. It's been They've been challenged in the courts, and I expect voters and Americans in general will be very heightened to the prospects of losing their ability to have their livelihoods to maintain flexible work arrangements because it's also a denial of where the future of the economy is going. The economy is welcoming and favoring flexible work arrangement. That doesn't mean you can't have benefits. That doesn't mean you can't have health care and you can't have a high quality of life. Workers, especially following COVID, have decided to favor uh, more remote options. Perhaps they want to have multiple clients. I've been working as a freelancer for six years now, and it's been a phenomenal type of arrangement for me. I've been able to be very financially successful compared to what I did when I worked a traditional job. I've been able to pick and choose my clients. I feel very fulfilled. If one day I decide to get married, have a family, I'll be able to pause my business and juggle both family and career really well. It's great for women, great for men um, to be able to do that. And the economy is moving in that direction right now. It's 36% of the workforce or 59 million. By 2028, it's going to be 91 million workers working in some semblance of freelance work, uh, whether they're full-time, part-time, or occasional independent contractors. Freelance kind of encompasses independent contracting, and there's different levels of that. Um, so I hope that breaks it down easily. But it's kind of going against the trends. And, and to see the Biden administration engaging in this type of rulemaking or genuflecting here, thinking that we're in the 1940s where workers are oppressed and you see a lot of companies rejecting attempts to be unionized. Home Depot 
uh, rejected its first attempt to be unionized by a three to one majority. The workers there voted no to unionization. And even though you see the media saying, yes, all these companies are organizing and they want to unionize, a lot of the times they're not reporting in to great favor, fervor uh, the, the votes that are being rejected. So we do see some businesses forming unions, but are they working truly or is it really is the media narrative painting the true story? No, because the workforce continues to favor flexible work and the union workforce is shrinking overwhelmingly. And that's not to say, you know, working in a union job is not noble or it's not virtuous. I think they're getting the shaft too by by their union heads. And I, like I said earlier, uh, union workers also tend to like life better in right to work states. They don't feel pigeonholed. They can have more leeway. They don't have to give their dues to parties or interests that they don't agree with. They're not compelled to do that. And so I think whether you're a unionized worker or non-unionized worker, um, you need to pay attention to rulemaking, whether it's in some semblance of the PRO Act or all facets of it or little components here and there, like an ABC test or an ABC test prototype, it's going to make quality of life and work situations a lot worse because people want the freedom to be able to pursue work to their liking, make as much money as they can, get themselves out of a rut, not be dependent on an employer, maybe escape a bad work situation. If you have a bad boss and you decide that you want to pursue something else, oftentimes you can get out of really bad work situations and have a better work kind of life balance too. And it's okay to embrace this. The economy is changing and it's it's not a bad thing and it's nothing to be afraid of. I think more workers all across the board will really like this if they have the opportunities at their fingertips. And to see the government try to discourage this last vestige or kind of outpost of entrepreneurship that's pure and unadulterated and have people work their way up from a one-person business to a brick and mortar to a big corporation, everyone starts off as a self-employed person possibly working their way up uh, to cripple those opportunities or to discourage people to take that path, it would really do us in in the future. And we can't have this freedom to be able to freely associate as a worker, independent worker, um, infringed upon. So I hope people do pay attention to who they elect, obviously, today, and then also pay attention to rulemaking because it's we have to pressure those people that we elect to office to make sure that rulemaking doesn't erase us from existence. I could not agree more with everything that you just said. Uh, I I wanted to know, I don't know if you're in the prediction game or not. What do you think the outcome today is going to be? Or I guess several weeks from now, I don't know what we're supposed to be expecting right now. What's, what are your predictions for today? At minimum, I think a ceiling Republicans will have in the Senate, if we're being conservative in our estimates, I think 51, 52 at minimum. If it's really a blowout election where Democrats are just disfavored and people are coming out of the woodwork for Republicans, it could be as high as 53, 54. Some people say 56. So I want to go with a conservative estimate of 51, 52. So to undercount myself in the House, I suspect we will have probably something in the high 220s, low 230s. Some people approximate as high as 249 seats. So maybe somewhere in that range of the high 220s to the nearly 250, who knows? Anything is possible. But I think Republicans are favored to win. I'm not saying this because I tend to vote that way, but you even hear independents and Democrats saying, I'm going to cross party lines to have a check on Washington so that there's divided government because I'm seeing all these things go up. And Republicans so far have pitched to us that they're going to lower the cost, that they're going to really champion really champion smaller government, getting the government out of the way, out of most decisions, support school choice, protect the right to work, 
focus on the pocketbook issue. So even independents and Democrats are saying that what is working now is not working or what is transpiring now is not working. And we could give this other party a shot because they seem serious about actually tackling these issues. And their policies haven't resulted in stuff like this. If you look two years ago, prior to Biden coming to office and pre-COVID, the country was largely doing very financially well. Now people are worried about 8% inflation, CPI index, and other woes, higher gas prices, higher heating oil costs. Things are more expensive now. And I think voters can recognize that it's the party in charge that is largely attributed to these higher prices. Well, as a libertarian, I prefer gridlock, so I like that prediction right there. Mm -hmm. uh, I I like a government that can do almost nothing, and that sounds like maybe <laughs> that's what we're going to get. I'll just be on the lookout for all those rules coming from the uh, alpha alphabet agencies out there. We'll definitely need to pay mm -hmm. attention to those. Uh, all right, so, Gabriella, where can people go to follow everything that you're doing? Because you've obviously got a ton of information that we need to be letting people know about here on this podcast. Sure. Well, for my policy-related stuff, I'm a senior fellow at Independent Women's Forum, where I focus chiefly on labor, small business, energy, and environment issues. So if you want to read what I'm up to on the policy front on those issues, I head over to IWF. I have a profile. It has all my works. Um, I, I do a lot of work. I'm a Northeast Regional Field Coordinator, or Northeast, rather, Regional Leader with Young Voices, and we're actively recruiting people to join our contributor program. If you have an interest and you're within the 18 to 35 uh, age group. We are looking for applicants, not just in my region, but also across the country. Um, so great opportunities to be able to come on podcasts like this uh, through the work of our editors and our media staff. And that's something um, you can find my stuff at Young Voices as well. I run a podcast called District of Conservation, where I talk about energy, environment, conservation, and the great outdoors. And I talk to newsmakers and we break down public policy. So that's one way to find me. I also host a series called Conservation Nation with the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, a free market environmental group where I'm actually interviewing people going across the country to highlight underreported stories as it relates to conservation, energy, and the like. And I have a website where you can find all my social media links, GabriellaHoffman.com. That's a lot of stuff to list, but I'm on social media de denoted by blue check marks everywhere. Have a YouTube <laughs> channel as well. And I look forward to connecting with your listeners and, and maybe sharing more content with them. Geez, nothing, nothing else other than that. I thought that you would maybe be busier during the day than that. That's, that sounds like <laughs> almost nothing. You must have plenty of spare time. All right. Gabriella Hoffman, thank you so much for your time. This was done on short notice, but I'm going to get a real quick turnaround before maybe everyone goes and votes today. And so we really appreciate your time today. Sure thing. Nice to meet you, Nate. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you.